If you haven't opened your Bibles to Exodus 28, please do so. Uh, Jen read verses 1 through 5 for us. We're actually going to cover the entirety of the chapter this morning. And as has been mentioned, we're uh, in the book of Exodus. uh, And over the past few weeks, we have been looking at the section where the Lord lays out the directions for the tabernacle. In chapter uh, 27, no, excuse me, 25, my, I just had a, uh, anyway, uh, my, my, my uh, under, yeah, anyway, sorry, I'm having a moment. Anyway, there's this chapter in Exodus where the Lord says he's going to come down. Someone can correct me on that. Uh, <laughs> he's going to come down, he's going to dwell with his people, and he gives instruction to, how to, to build him a home and a tent, and there's furniture there. And so we've been looking at that the past few weeks, and this week we're going to look at something a little bit different, though connected, the garments of the high priest. And so the title of my message this morning is this, Proper Tent Attire. How do you do with dress codes? (laughs) Do you like dress codes? Maybe some of you like them. No, some people do not. We recognize dress codes are a a part of life. We often have to put up with them or we have to to engage them and, and participate in them, whether it be at work or at school or for particular events. When I lived in D.C., uh, it, it's a very prim and proper kind of place. Have you ever been to D.C.? It's a gov- like, you know, government everywhere, and so people are constantly walking around in suits and professional dress. But working in ministry, both there and even here, one of the things that I love is the dress code. The dress code at First City Church. There really isn't one other than just show up with relatively nice clothes on. So that means some days you can show up a little bit closer to business casual. Some days we will show up with hoodies and hats on. I love the flexibility. Maybe you have that flexibility in your job, maybe you don't. But we recognize that there are dress codes there that that, that in some ways are important. Some may feel a little bit overly restrictive. Uh, I I I graduated from a, a Christian high school, and this team that we played, I kid you not, the boys, even the boys, had to wear sweatpants when they played basketball. Maybe you went to a Christian school that was that strict. I, I'm sorry for you if you did, but it felt a little overly restrictive. It's like the, the guys had to wear sweatpants as well. That was, that was a very strong dress code. But other dress codes can kind of point to the occasion. It can say, hey, this is proper and this is appropriate. So you think of going to a wedding. It is right to dress up to go to a wedding. When there is an event that is so special, so important, that Wearing a proper attire to reflect the importance of that is something that you should do. Listen, if you go to a formal wedding and you wear a t-shirt and jeans, you're not this cool, hipster, rebellious person sticking it to the man. You just look like a jerk. (laughs) You just look like somebody who is just out of place. You're not honoring the the, the proper setting, honoring the the, the sacredness of the moment. You know, it's funny, there was, uh, kind of speaking, living in D.C., have you guys ever been to a restaurant where you had to like wear a jacket to eat in there? Like men, you had to wear a jacket. Have you ever been to one that nice? Like that, those things always fascinated me. I'm like thinking, why? Why would you need to put on a jacket? Is this food so good that the laws of society require me to put a jacket on to eat this steak? Like I want to eat a steak that good. And then I wonder, like, should I put a jacket on at home when I eat leftovers? I mean, is it that good? <laughs> Dress coats, whether you like them or loathe them, we recognize that they can signal something very important. They can signal something good. And this morning, we are going to look at a particular dress code. In Exodus 28, 
the Lord lays out instructions for the outfit, the garment that the high priest is going to wear. The priest who is going to serve in the the tabernacle, serve in the tent. Verse 2 of Exodus 28 says these garments are to reflect glory and beauty. If the priest is going to serve in a tent that is glorious and beautiful, his attire needs to reflect that, needs to honor the location in which he is going to work. And so the, the, the clothes, as we are going to see, honor the occasion, honor the setting. But there's something else going on as well. The clothes actually point to the ministry and the job of the high priest. As we've been talking about uh, over the past several weeks, one of the tensions in the book of Exodus is this idea of close but not too close, that God comes down to dwell with his people, but there's this distance that is still there, that they can get only so close, that there's a gap there. And in order to close that gap, the Lord appoints a high priest, a mediator, a go-between, someone to stand between the Lord and the people as a way to broach relationship. And as we're going to see, the garments of the high priest, the clothing that he wears, points to this ministry of being a mediator and the importance of this role. And what the garments are going to show us is that the mediator had to be a particular type of person, that the mediator had to have a particular standing and status. What what these garments are ultimately going to show us is this main point of the text, that only a holy mediator can bring us into the presence of a holy God. So let's unpack these verses in chapter 28 to see how this main point unfolds for us. So the verses that Jen read for us in Exodus 28, 1 through 5, give us an overview of the garments and the materials. And the rest of the chapter kind of goes into the detail of each article of clothing. So picking it up here in verse 2, this is the overview we get. Make holy garments for your brother Aaron for glory and beauty. You are to instruct the skilled artisans whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom to make Aaron's garments for consecrating him to serve me as priest. These are the garments that they must make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a specially woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They're to make holy garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so they may serve me as priests. They should, be, they should use gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. So as with the tabernacle and the furniture, we don't know 100% what these holy garments looked like, but we have a pretty good idea. They probably look something like this. So this is a, a rendering of the high priest, and you can see holding, he's kind of holding the, uh, the incense there, ministering before the Lord. And so the first thing that I, just to note here, is the materials. The materials of the the high priest's garments. They are made of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen. What else is made out of those materials? You remember last week, the curtains of the tabernacle, specifically the inner curtains. The curtains that signified the presence of God. The the curtains that had the, the, the cherubim woven into them. So if you are going to stand before the presence of God on behalf of the people, if you're going to enter into the presence of God, serve in God's house, your clothes are going to reflect the glory and the beauty of God's house. And so they were made out of the same material. Then Exodus 28, 6 through 14, describes the first article of clothing, which is the ephod. Now the ephod is essentially what looks like a really elaborate apron that the the priest is wearing. It's the, the top outer garment there. And again, this is made of gold and of blue and scarlet, 
uh, yarn and purple yarn and fine linen. And the defining feature of the ephod, and you can't really see it in this picture, but on the ephod, there are two shoulder pieces that, that sit on top of the ephod, right on the shoulders, that are onyx stone set in a gold. And on these two stones are etched the names of the tribes of Israel. And so the names of the sons of Israel are on the shoulders of the high priest. And this is the first sort of indication, first, first thing that signifies that the, the high priest is a mediator, that he goes before the Lord on behalf of the people. He sort of carries the people, as it were, on his shoulders before the presence of God. Now, we understand, I think we understand pretty well, the idea of a mediator, the concept of a mediator. A mediator is someone who stands between two parties when there is sort of a, a, a gap in relationship. There, there, there's two people that need to be brought closer together, and there's a go-between, a mediator in between them. Maybe you have had legal trouble or a financial difficulty where you needed a mediator to sort of go between you and whether you were on one side or the other of that dispute to, to fix that, to bring reconciliation between that. Or maybe you've been in conflict with somebody else and you needed a mediator, someone to go between you and the other person to bridge the gap of relationship. So mediators can work to bring reconciliation. Mediators can also just work to, to bring relationship, bring two people together. great example of this was when I was in junior high and even into high school. Uh, back when I was in, in junior high and high school and even middle school uh, in, the, in the 90s, there was this thing where if you liked somebody, uh, you got your friend to go talk to them. Anybody, anybody, did you, does anybody remember this, this whole dynamic, this whole really strange, odd dynamic? It was like you would, you would you know, get to know this person, but the moment you sort of, quote-unquote, liked them, you just became unable to hang out with them, and so you had to have somebody else go talk to them. You say, hey, can you, can you go tell this person that I like them because I'm too shy to do it myself? Or can my friend go talk to your friends and then you guys can talk to about how we like each other? So you, you needed a mediator. T teens, do you guys do this still? Is this, is this still a thing? No, you, you guys don't do that, right? You, 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 don't, you wouldn't do this, something that silly. You have Snapchat to do that. <laughs> Why use a person? We have digital mediators. <laughs> we understand the, the, the need of a go-between someone to, to close a gap in relationship. And this is what the high priest's role was. And the ephod, the, the shoulder pieces, showed that this was part of his ministry. Another thing that showed this, that, that his ministry was one of being a mediator was the breast piece. So the, the, the sort of elaborate piece that sat on top of the ephod with the precious stones. Each one of these stones, repre again, represented one of the, the tribes of Israel, one of the names was etched on the stone. Isn't it interesting that when the Lord signifies his people, uses something to, to show the worth and value of his people, he uses precious gemstones. Even in the midst of their sin, he, he didn't say, hey, put gravel and dirt on top of the ephod. That, that's, that's what my people are, gravel and dirt. No, precious gemstones. That's how the high priest represented God's people before the Lord. And notice where the gemstones are located. If you read in verse 29 of chapter 28, it tells us that whenever Aaron entered the tabernacle, he was to carry the names of Israel's sons over his heart on the breastpiece. The high priest carried Israel on his heart. His work wasn't dry and dead and lifeless. No, it was a work of love. It was an act of love. 
It was an act of love and devotion and dedication to the Lord, yes, but also the Lord's people. When he went before the Lord, the concern of God's people was on his heart. He cared deeply about closing this gap between the people and God. He loved them. He was to love them and care for them. And then when he was to make decisions, verse 29 says that he carries the sons of Israel in his heart on the breastplate for decisions, meaning when the high priest was to discern the will of God or make decisions on behalf of the people of God, he wasn't to be selfish. He wasn't to be self-seeking. It wasn't for his own personal gain and status and glory. No, it was for the good of God's people. And so he was a mediator there for the good of God's people. And verses 31 through 35 go on to describe the robe which was made of blue yarn. You can kind of see that. It's just the the solid blue robe there. And the bottom hem of the robe had pomegranates that were made of blue and purple and scarlet yarn. And so you can't, can't see it too well, but if you look at this picture up close, you would see there were little circles that were made, there were pomegranates that were sort of stitched into the robe. Now, pomegranates were celebrated in the ancient Near East for their sweetness and their taste that they were a sign of flourishing and abundance. Some scholars argue that the tree of life in the garden had pomegranates hanging as its fruits. Now, that's a cool idea and a cool connection to the high priest. I don't know if that is true, but what the pomegranates show is that ultimately the, the ministry of the high priest was a ministry of life. He was there so God's people would flourish. They would experience goodness and abundance. What was also hanging from the robe, were bells. Verse 35 tells us that the bells will be heard when he, meaning the priest, enters and exits the tabernacle so that he does not die. This is an interesting detail here, that every, whenever the priest walked, the bells would jingle so you knew where he was. What, what, what's up with that? Why did he need these on his robe so he did not die? Well, as we've seen repeatedly, you don't enter into the presence of God casually. If, if you're familiar with more formal settings, more aristocratic settings or, or settings where there is somebody of high status and power, you don't just barge in on them. You don't just sort of walk in unannounced. No, you have to be announced. You don't get to surprise people of high importance and power. And so there was this idea that the priest didn't just sort of sneak into God's house. He announced himself. He let himself be known. Now, did the Lord know he was entering? Yes. But it's a sign of formality, a sign of showing reverence and awe for entering into the presence of God. And so he didn't walk in uh, casually. He walked in with the sense of, Lord, I'm, I'm coming in. I'm, I'm asking permission, as it were, to enter into your presence. So it's a sign of reverence before the Lord. And closing out the chapter, verses 39 through 43, tell us that under the robe there is a tunic. So that is the, the white, solid white that is under the robe that the high priest wore. And underneath that tunic, he also wore undergarments uh, that, that ensured that he was never exposed improperly to the Lord. And so it was, it was a way to, to cover his entire being before the Lord. Now, all that outer clothing that we've covered so far, all, all the outer clothing and all that it, its descriptions and purposes, they, they really build to the item that is most telling, that the part of the outfit that, that really cuts to the chase and really gives us this clear sense of what all, this, all these garments are about. And that is the turban on his head and the gold diadem that is attached to the turban. This is what verses 36 through 38 tell us. You are to make a pure gold medallion and engrave it, like the engraving of a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten to it, it to a cord of blue yarn so that it can be placed on the turban. 
The medallion is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead so that Aaron may bear the guilt connected with the holy offerings that the Israelites consecrate as all their holy gifts. It is always to be on his forehead so that they may find acceptance with the Lord. So, so the turban is the headdress, sort of the, the, the crown, so to speak, that the, the high priest would wear. And then connected to it, there is this gold band that you can kind of see in the picture uh, that is almost like the front of a crown. And on that, on the front of it, was etched holy to the Lord, signifying that the high priest, that Aaron and, and all succeeding high priests are holy to the Lord. They're, they're set apart. Like all the proper tent attire, all the, the garments that they're wearing, all of that is to declare something about the priest, holy to the Lord. Not a run-of-the-mill average mediator, a special mediator, a mediator that is holy to the Lord. Chapter 29 describes the ordination service of the high priest and all the, the washings and the sacrifices and the gifts, everything that was kind of done in order to set this high priest apart. And all of that was to make this priest holy. This is the way the Lord was marking the priest, signifying that he is separate, distinct, different. He has a specific role. He's holy unto me to be a mediator between God and his people. So everything in this attire is pointing to this, that the high priest is holy. He's distinct. He's different. His role is holy. It is distinct. It is different. It is important. And this distinction is in, it matters. It matters deeply. Without this distinction, the high priest can't even do his job. So let's trace the logic of this. Let's trace what, what's been building here in these chapters of Exodus. If you think, again, going back to what, what is this tension that, that Exodus has been telling us, and even if we go back further into the book, it's that to be near a holy God, you have to be holy. Only a holy people can be near a holy God. And so because of sin, there is a gap, there is a break between sinful people and a holy God. And the only way that that gap can be closed is through a mediator. The people needed a mediator. But if that mediator was going to be near God, that need mediator had to be what? Holy. The mediator had to be holy in order to close that gap. So the, this whole distinction matters for the high priest to be able to do his job. He has to be set apart and made holy because only a holy mediator can bring us into the presence of a holy God. So the high priest had to be holy, or we could say it this way, had to be holy enough to be able to enter the presence of God. As mediator, the high priest was to bear the guilt connected with the holy offerings, that part of his job as mediator was to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. And so what would happen is someone would bring a sacrifice, bring an animal to be sacrificed to the priest, and the priest would sacrifice that animal and then bring that sacrifice, bring that blood, bear that before the Lord on behalf of that person. See, the people themselves could not enter into God's presence and bring that sacrifice and bring that blood before the Lord themselves. They needed a holy mediator to be able to do that. And so because the high priest had been made holy, the high priest could bear that sacrifice, carry that sacrifice, carry that blood as if he was carrying his own guilt before the Lord to present that sacrifice, present that atonement on behalf of the people. The reason he could do that is because he had been set apart. He was holy. He was holy enough. The Lord himself had marked him. The Lord had cleansed him, had purified him, had set him apart as a servant. 
This is what all of that attire showed. This is what all of his, his robes and the ephod and the breast piece and the turban and the diadem, everything showed this. A holy mediator who stands before a holy God to bring people into the presence of God. And so the, we can kind of see how all of this fits together. The Lord comes down to dwell with his people in a tabernacle with all the furniture and in serving in the Lord's house, there is a mediator through whom the Lord ministers to the people and through whom the people are brought into the presence of God. This is the ministry of the high priest. This is what all the proper tent attire shows us. But we're still left with this tension, still left with the tension of the book of Exodus, close but not close enough. Or to put it in terms of the high priest, holy but not holy enough. See, if you're going to bridge a gap, you need the right mediator. You need a mediator who is skilled enough. Like if you have significant, maybe legal dispute or significant financial situation, you're not going to go just hire some bum mediator. You're going to find somebody who is good, who is skilled, somebody who is honest, somebody who's, who's not going to be manipulated and, and sort of uh, blown over by the other party. You're not going to find somebody who is dishonest and is going to uh, kind of seek their own means and, and, and kind of go behind your back. No, you're going to find the best mediator you can find, especially if the gap is significant. If you have a major problem, you're going to find the right mediator. Like, look, when, when I was in middle school and junior high, I didn't send just any friend to go talk to a girl. Like, I sent my best friend, or I sent my friend who was the most articulate, who could make me sound the best. Like, you send your best. Like, teens, you don't, you don't use any app, right? Like, you would never use email. And, and you probably don't even use text. Like, you, you've got to use the right app if you're going to communicate with your friends. So we need to send a good enough mediator. We need a good enough mediator. And over and over and over again, for, for all the, 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 the glory of the, the garments, all the holiness of the garment, for, for as significant as the ministry the high priest was, over and over again, we are going to see that the high priest is holy, but not holy enough. First evidence of this comes in the next chapter, chapter 29, when we see that he's being ordained and set apart. The high priest has to make sacrifice for his own sin. He has to sacrifice a bull for his own sin. He is sinful. He is a sinner. He has to be atoned for just as much as the people have to be atoned for. And we see this even later, how significant of sin the high priest can fall into. Uh, Pastor Paul is going to preach on this next week in Exodus chapter 32. While Moses is on top of the mountain receiving all of these instructions, while he's receiving all of uh, how to order the worship of God's people, what's happening down at the foot of the mountain? God's people are in a party worshiping a false god. And who's leading them in that worship? Aaron, the future high priest. Terribly flawed, terribly sinful. Holy, but not holy enough. How else do we know that the high priest wasn't holy enough? Because he had to keep making sacrifices. The sacrifices that he offered didn't settle the matter. It didn't fully bring reconciliation. He had to keep doing it over and over and over. He could not in and of himself bring the full reconciliation and remove sin. No, he had to keep sacrificing. He was not holy enough. Also, even though the high priest was able to enter into the holy place, he could go into the most holy place, directly into the presence of God, only once per year. 
So even for the high priest, the person who was the closest to the Lord in Israel, he could only directly go into the the Holy of Holies one time of year. Even for the high priest, it was close but not too close. And if that was true for him, there was no way he was going to be able to bring the rest of Israel closer to the Lord. So we see this gap has not been fully closed. It is still close but not too close. Holy but not holy enough. If that gap is going to be closed, if there's going to be true and full reconciliation and true close-up relationship, a holier mediator is needed. A better mediator is needed. And in many ways, listen, this is, this is partly the point of the whole system. Like God did not set up a system because he was like, oh, this is my best stab and it's not really working. No, God set up a system, partly the point to show that something greater is needed. Remember what we've seen, that the the tabernacle and the furniture and the priestly garments, that's all shadow. It's copy. They're they're, they're not the ends in and of themselves. They're meant to point to something greater. Like we're intended to look through the high priest and to see a holier mediator. We're to see the deficiency of this high priest to see the need for a greater high priest. And this is exactly the point the New Testament book of Hebrews makes. This is what Hebrews chapter 7 says. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for for those of the people. He, this is meaning Jesus, did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, But the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. In the sinfulness of Aaron and the other high priests, we see our need for a priest who is sinless. In the high priests offering sacrifices over and over and over again, we see our need for a priest who makes a sacrifice once for all. In the weakness and the brokenness of the the earthly high priest, we see our need for a high priest who stands strong forever. We look through this high priest to see an even greater high priest. For, For there to be no more close but not close, but just close. To be truly brought near to God and into his presence. We need a holy mediator. We need a holier mediator. We need a mediator holy enough that can completely close that gap for us. And praise God, he has provided such a mediator. By his love and his mercy and grace, God has provided such a mediator in Jesus Christ. See, the good news of the message of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ isn't a sinful mediator, a sinful high priest, but he's sinless. You see, the the, the high priest put on these garments that, that marked him as holy, but he wasn't holy in and of himself. He needed to be atoned for, but Jesus is holy in and of himself. He doesn't wear the the, the outward robes that sort of make him holy. No, he wears his own righteousness. He is holy. He is perfect. He is sinless. And Jesus, in his love and in his grace, willingly lays down his life for us. He dies on a cross. He sheds his blood. And unlike the the blood of bulls and goats that had to be sacrificed over and over and over and over again, Jesus' blood sacrificed once for all. There's nothing else that needs to be paid, no more debt that needs to be owed, nothing to add to Christ's payment. Jesus paid it all as we sing. 
And not only did Jesus die, but Jesus rose again in victory. And where did he go when he was raised from the dead? He ascended into heaven. He doesn't go into the earthly temple, which is a copy. No, he goes into the heavenly reality. He goes into the very presence of God himself. And he sits down at the right hand of God. But it doesn't stop there. Do you know what else Jesus does? He brings us with. He brings us with. What does Colossians 3 said? We are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. When Jesus entered into the most holy place, he brought us with him. This is how close God has brought, or Jesus has brought us to God, that we have now entered into the very presence of God. Not close, but not too close. It's only close. How close is God, has Jesus brought us to the Father? We who were once enemies, now we're sons and daughters. It's as if Jesus enters into the holy of holies. He enters into the presence of God and he sees the smile of his father and Jesus smiles back at his father. Then they both turn and they smile at us and welcome us into the presence. This is what Jesus has done. This is what a holy enough mediator has done. This is the holy mediator that has brought full and complete forgiveness for all our sins and brought us into the very presence of God. Only a holy mediator can do that. Only someone holy enough can do that. Only Jesus Christ can do that. What the high priest and what that system could never do, Jesus has done. So here is the outstanding question for us. Here's where all of this meets the road for us. Here's where all of this matters for us. What mediator are you trusting in? When you consider the gap between you and God, no matter how big or how small that gap is, who's the mediator that is closing that gap for you? Who are you trusting to close that gap for you? We run to all sorts of mediators, don't we? (laughs) All sorts of mediators. Like some of us, we, rather than running to Christ, we, we do this whole mediation through minimization. Like, we, we try to mediate the gap by minimizing the problem. God, it's not that big a deal. You know, the, the, the sin in my life, the gap between me and God, you know, it, it's, it's just, you know, it's a little bit of a misunderstanding. Yeah, I just kind of messed, maybe messed up a little bit. It's not that big a deal. And so we hope to close that gap by shrinking the severity of our sin. As if we just sort of spoke out of turn rather than being in rebellion that deserves death and judgment. We minimize. We minimize. We shrink the gap by saying that gap isn't all that big, and so you know what? Why even bother at all? Mediation by minimization. Is that you? Do you deny the severity of your sin? Do you deny the need for a mediator? Do you deny the fact that you cannot close that gap yourself, and no matter how much you minimize the problem, you're not going to close that gap? It's not as if the Lord is going to go, oh, you know what? You're right. What was I thinking? Not a big deal at all. No, a holy God, a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin, and our sin is great. It is rebellion. And so mediating by minimization does not solve the problem. It does not close the gap. Another thing that we can do is mediation through maximization. And I think, in some ways, we're probably more prone to this. Mediation by maximization is this. If I beat myself up enough, then I can close the gap. You know what, if I, if I feel bad enough about what I've done, 
If, if I get to this place where I'm just, you know, emotionally just tearing myself up, beating myself up, talking about how terrible I am to myself and to other people, if I just go overboard on acknowledging how sinful I am, that's going to close the gap for me. So we beat, each, we beat ourselves up. We, we, we can kind of go through this spiritual flagellation where we think, man, I draw as close to God, it depends upon how bad I feel about this thing. Or we, we, can, we, we can sort of do that emotionally. We can also do that through our, our own performance. I mean, if I do enough to make up for this gap, mediation through my own performance, if I can make up for all the bad things that I have done, I can close this gap. If I, if I can show that, hey, I mean business and I'm sorry for what I did, so let me show all of these things that I have done in order to close the gap, show you just how bad I feel about everything that I've done, that will bring reconciliation. That will bring mediation. Mediation through maximization. Is this you? Like, do you believe that the thing that is going to close the gap between you and God is how bad you feel about your sin? That you've got to beat yourself up in order to get, for God to accept you? Or you've got to perform your way out of whatever sin that you find yourself in in order for God to accept you? You know what the irony of that is? The irony of mediation by maximization is that it's the same thing as mediation by minimization. Because you think you are actually able to close the gap you have shrunk sin so to, to a degree that you actually think you can do something about it. You've minimized it. It may not feel that way. It may not appear that way. You may be very serious about your sin externally, but what you have decided is that you actually can solve your own problem. You actually have the means of mediation yourself. Is that you? Is that you? Or do you use other people to be your mediator? Like, listen, the ministry of the church is beautiful. Jesus has actually made us priests, and that's an entirely different sermon. But we minister to one another. We pray for one another. We care for one another. We speak gospel truth to one another. We help each other grow in the gospel and believing gospel truths. And there are some times that we need to speak that gospel. We need to confront one another. We need to do all of that good work to help each other grow. But in all of that, listen, we're not each other's mediators. We are ministering to each other. We're caring for one another, but we're not each other's mediators. There's one mediator between man and God. Me as a pastor, Pastor Paul or Pastor Kyle, like our work as pastors, we're shepherds. We're not mediators. Our work is to declare gospel truth to you, to point you to Jesus Christ, to declare with authority that this is the truth of the gospel, but we're not your mediators. So using us, using other people, and, and this is how this can kind of play out. We, we think, man, if I just constantly tell this person all the bad stuff that I'm doing, that that's somehow going to absolve me of my guilt. And oftentimes that's just about getting rid of a feeling. And so we can use other people thinking, man, if I just get this other person to validate me or tell me it's not bad enough or, or, or do whatever I need them to do, then that's sort of mediating and getting me closer to God. My friends, None of us are holy enough. <laughs> None of us are holy enough mediators to close that gap for you. I'm not. Pastor Paul isn't. Pastor Kyle isn't. Brothers and sisters in this church, we're never intended to play that role. We love you. We care for you. We want to minister the gospel to you, but we are not your mediators. Only one is holy enough to close that gap. So let me ask this. like The, the, the mediators that you seek, the mediators you chase after, Are they holy enough? 
Here's how you know. One, are you actually experiencing forgiveness of your sins? I'm not talking about just the release of emotion. I'm talking about actual forgiveness. That the guilt and the shame are being removed. And then here's also how you know. Are you actually moving towards the Lord? Like on the other side of whatever thing you run for, for mediation, is it actually bringing you closer to the Lord where you love the Lord more, you worship him more, you're more obedient and faithful to the Lord, you want to be around him and his people? Is it drawing you closer? Or is it just sort of, again, removing the emotion, but you just kind of carry on with your day? No, Jesus brings us close to God, close to one another. True mediation, true gospel mediation brings us close. Also, here's the other thing, and Hebrews 8 talks about this, that the, the, the mediation of the high priest could not transform anyone. Is your mediation actually changing you? The things you look to for mediation is actually transforming you. Is it actually making you more faithful to God's word? Is it making you more faith-filled and joy-filled and love-filled? Are you dying to sin, dying to self because of what Christ has done, or are you just kind of carrying on? Getting past a particular incident, but then just kind of carrying on. No, the mediation of Christ actually changes you. The ministry of Christ actually changes you because he is holy enough. So First City Church, listen, here's the good news for us. This is what's so good for us. When we look at what Jesus has done and all his glory and power and victory, when you look at his holiness and his sinlessness and his love and his grace and his mercy and the fact that he died for our sins and rose in victory over every sin and every evil and even death itself, when we look at the greatness and the glory of that, why would we ever run to any other mediator? Why would we not? I pray pray this for myself as much as anyone, but just like, God, just show us how dumb we are sometimes, like how dull we are that we chase after these lesser mediators when the glory of Christ is our mediator. The person of Christ is our mediator. So my prayer for us is that we would see what Jesus has done and the grace and the, and the power that is in Christ and these lesser mediators that we run to would fade. We'd see the dullness. We'd see that they are not holy enough and we turn away from them and we turn to Jesus. Friends, there is a holy mediator a mediator that can bring you into the very presence of God. Put your trust in him. Turn from your sin, turn from the false ones, and turn to that mediator and live in the good of the presence of God. Amen? Let's pray.